Well, we're uh, moving through our uh, sermon series on the Minor Prophets, and we are down to the last three. Uh, Next week, we'll look at uh, Zechariah, and then on August 28th, we'll finish things up by looking at the prophet Malachi. Today, we're looking at the prophet Haggai. Haggai is one of the last three prophets in the Old Testament that speaks during a time that's called the post-exilic era. He prophesied in 520 BC, but only for five months, from August to December, after the Israeli exiles returned to their homeland under the leadership of someone named Zerubbabel. Say that fast three times. Now, while the other prophets that we looked at had a lot of items on their menu that they were speaking against, Haggai is a single-issue prophet. In fact, the whole book can basically be summed up in chapter 1, verse 8, in which it says, go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may be honored, says the Lord. So Haggai is focusing on the rebuilding of the temple. You see, Solomon's glorious temple was demolished some 70 years earlier in 587 BC by the Babylonians. And so Haggai, if you can picture this, is standing amongst the fire-blackened ruins of what once was, and he preaches on the necessity of the people to restore their place of worship to Zion's hill. Now, what's interesting to me is that Haggai's name means to make a pilgrimage or to hold a festival. And since the temple was this center of religious activity for feasts and festivals, his name does appear to be appropriate for his message. Well, then when we get to chapter two, Haggai is addressing a a concerned and beleaguered community that believe there's no way that this new temple that they are having to build is ever going to measure up to what once was, to, to Solomon's Gothic cathedral. And so Haggai makes a house call, kind of like a doctor helping a sick person. He writes them a prescription so that they can feel better. He tells the builders, and I think you and me here today, to take heart. And so with that as an introduction, I want to invite you to join me as I read from the book of Haggai, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. You can follow along on the screen. In the second year of King Darius, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, The word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you that saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Is it not in your sight as nothing? Yet now take courage, O Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Take courage, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Take courage, all you people of the land, says the Lord. Work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the promise that I made you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit abides among you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once again, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, so that the treasure of all the nations shall come. And I will fill this house with splendor, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, 
says the Lord of hosts. The latter splendor of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give prosperity, says the Lord of hosts. And friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our uh, second scripture reading is from the book of Romans in the New Testament, uh, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39. Paul writes, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charges against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then my favorite verses in all the Bible. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The first sentence in uh, M. Scott Peck's bestseller, The Road Less Travel, has uh, some of life's most profound insights, and it comes in just three words. The book begins with, life is difficult. And that was certainly the feelings of that faithful Jewish remnant that was left over from the Babylonian exile. Evicted from their homeland some uh, 67 years earlier, they watched with, with tears as Solomon's temple was turned to ashes. And now they are returning back to the same place, and it is hardly recognizable to them. It is a very, very different place. Different how? There's nothing left. Even Haggai says, how does it look to you now? Does it seem to you like nothing? And yet, God says to them, build. Or, in your case, rebuild. Don't despair. Get on with the rebuilding. Do the work for which you have been called. God says the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, and in this place I will grant peace. But the people couldn't understand that. 
They didn't have two nickels to rub together. Solomon's temple had it all. And so they are romanticizing the past and mourning and grieving over what once was. That they're stuck in the memory of yesterday. They are absolutely hating the reality of the day and they are fearful of what tomorrow will bring. And while being asked to, to, to build sounds exciting, it's not gonna look anything like it did before. You know, what we build says a lot about who we are. A house, a home, is a very powerful expression of a person's dreams and values. As you know, I lived in North Carolina for about 20 years, and I had a few opportunities to, to go to Asheville and visit the Biltmore Estates on class trips with my children. The Biltmore Estates is uh, 175 square feet, and it is on over 8,000 acres of land. It is known as the largest privately owned home in America. It was constructed by George Vanderbilt. It took about six years to build, and it finally was finished in 1895. The Biltmore, if you've ever been there, or even if you haven't, is a four-story house built with 11 million bricks that has 250 rooms, 65 fireplaces, 34 bedrooms, 40 bathrooms, no waiting, <laughs> a two-story library, an indoor swimming pool, and a bowling alley. The problem back in Haggai's day is that the people of Israel didn't have anything close to those kind of resources to build or rebuild the temple. So in essence, they were starting from scratch. And all those important pieces of memorabilia, the things from their past that were an important part of their history, the Ark of the Covenant with its mercy seat and cherubim, it's gone. The stone tablets with the Ten Commandments etched on them, gone. Pot of manna, Aaron's rod, the eternal fire on the altar, all of it was swept away in the Babylonian Holocaust. And for sure, they may be able to find replicas to take those things place, but things are never going to be the same again. Everything familiar, everything that made them feel comfortable, everything that brought them peace and hope, it's gone. So, what are the people to do? God says to those people, start again, rebuild, get on with your lives. In the movie, The Natural, Robert Redford plays the baseball player, Roy Hobbs, who has had kind of a tough life. And at one point in the movie, Roy Hobbs says to his wife, everyone lives two lives. There's the life we learn with, and then there's the one we really live after that. I think that Haggai, the prophet, is saying, there's the house that you once had, that you worshiped in, the house that crumbled and cracked and collapsed and burned to the ground. And then when you pick up the pieces, there's the house that you build on God. And that's the house that you really live in. Now, the apostle Paul goes even further in the book of Romans. He says, all things work together for good for those who love God. I don't know about you, but wouldn't it have been better if, if Paul had said, 
Some things work together for good for those who love God. Uh, many things work together for good for those who love God. Most things work together for good for those who love God. A lot of tragic clouds have silver linings. Paul didn't say any of those things. In all things, all things, in every case of cancer, in every financial crisis, in every single car accident, in every single divorce, in every death, God is working out the good? That sounds like the gospel according to Disney World. You know, a lot of what's doled out today as Christian theology, in my mind, is just a bunch of nonsense. It, it's slick people marketing God. And we hear things, well, follow God and he will improve your golf score. Really? Or, or, or pray this specific prayer and you won't have any problems in your life. Now, the problem with that kind of thinking is suddenly you face a crisis and then your faith collapses like a house of cards. I think what God is saying to you and me as we rebuild our houses of faith is that we need to keep in mind three things, and it's very easy to remember. Foundation, foundation, and foundation. I heard the story of a house in Chicago that caught on fire and the family, the father, the mother, a couple of children, they were able to get safely out of the home. But one of the little boys did a 180 degree turn and he ran back into that house because he wanted to get his favorite stuffed animal. The next thing he peered at the second story window of that house and he was crying and yelling and there was smoke coming out from behind him. And his father, who's outside, down below on the ground, says, jump, son, jump, I'll catch you. And the boy cried, oh, but daddy, I can't see you. And the father said, it's okay, son. It's okay. I can see you. Even when it seems like there's nothing beneath us, God, the rock of ages, is there for us. Paul tells the church in Ephesus, and I think you and me today, you are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets of whom Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. And so the one foundation upon which we can build a stable life amidst the, the charred ruins is Jesus Christ. And the trust in Jesus Christ is to make him the foundation of your life, and he will be your refuge and strength, and he will be your source of strength in times of trouble. Haggai is saying to us, in the midst of those tragedies and hurts and painful experiences, you can count on this. God is with you. In fact, three times in the book of Haggai, God says, I am with you. Now, we all love the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the book of Daniel. These three Hebrew hunks who said there's no way they're going to bow down to any idols of King Nebuchadnezzar. And that so infuriated the king that he threw them into a furnace that was so hot that the soldiers who threw them into the furnace were burned to a crisp. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were unhurt. And they walked around in the furnace singing praises to God. And, and King Nebuchadnezzar was amazed and he said, 
weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? I see four men walking around in the fire, and the fourth is like the Son of God. My friends, I'm here to tell you it was the Son of God. God goes with us into the flames. The astounding part of the story is that God did not take them out of the fire, but God chose to go into the fire with them. And so he does with you and me today. Now you may be saying, yes, but my, my flames hurt. It didn't hurt them. God's promise is to be with you in those flames and to never leave you nor forsake you. He says to the people, I am with you. Stories told of a man who was uh, sitting under an acorn tree and he was having this kind of sarcastic, cynical monologue with God. He said, God, I don't think you know what the heck you're doing. If you're so smart, how come you made these small acorns to hang from such tall, sturdy trees and you made these small, flimsy plants to hold something so big and heavy like watermelons? And then just laughed out loud at this foolishness of this disproportion in what he seemed was, was God's mindless universe. Well, suddenly as he was laughing about it, an acorn fell on his head. The man paused for a moment and said, well, thank God it wasn't a watermelon. <laughs> Trust me, God knows what he's doing. Think about all the times that you came to about this close to not being with us here today. You know, the time you were riding your bike and that car just missed you. Or maybe you were in a car accident and the people looked at that car and they couldn't believe that you walked away from it alive. Or maybe it was the time they found the cancer just in time. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And he promises to us, whether we're as Frank Sinatra sings, flying high in April or shot down in May or somewhere in between those, God is with us all the time. Another time that I was out towards Asheville in the western part of North Carolina at the uh, Montree Conference Center where we brought our, brought our youth for a retreat, they had a worship service and towards the end of the worship service, the uh, Worship leader said, God is good, and the people responded all the time. He said, all the time, and the people responded, God is good. As I close, let's try that. God is good. And all the time. God is good. And all the time. God is good. And all the time. Let's pray. God, you are good, and you are good all the time, and we give you thanks for your faithfulness and for being present with us, for being that source and strength and shelter in times of trouble when we uh, struggle with pain or grieving or mourning, and we look around us, and there are just the charred ruins of our lives. God, we are thankful that you have not abandoned us. You have not forsaken us. You have not left us. You are not indifferent to our plight. God, it is in those moments that you love us even more. And so come close to each and every person here who may be going through a difficult chapter in their lives, Lord. Give them your comfort, give them your Holy Spirit, give them your presence so that they may know that they're not alone. Indeed, that we all may hear those words echo in our ears, I am with you. 
Thank you, O God, for being with us in this service. Thank you, O God, for being with us after we leave this service. Thank you, O God, for being with us all the time, everywhere we go. And we ask it and pray it in Christ's name. Amen.